Hello and welcome to the Privacy Podcast brought to you by Buckalter, a law firm with nine offices up and down the West Coast. I'm your host, Daniel Zarchi. I'm joined today by Weiss Hamid, an associate for Buckalter in the Los Angeles office, and Carl Gerner, an associate for Buckalter in the Seattle office. Uh, how you doing, guys? How you doing, Weiss? Good to see you. Congratulations on your Dodgers. I was about to say, uh, I, I wasn't sure how quickly into this podcast before I rep the the Dodger win. Uh, I don't want to date this thing either. So hopefully when people are listening to this, we are also World Series champions, but we'll see. Well, and thanks for joining us, Carl. How are you doing up there in the PNW? Doing great. Uh, it's not raining winds, but it is raining. <laughs> we could use some rain down here in the Bay Area. Um, so today on the show, we're going to be devoting this whole episode to Prop 24. That is the California Privacy Rights Act in California. Um, before that, we're going to touch briefly on some revised attorney general regulations for the CCPA. But uh, given that the election is coming up and it looks like the CPRA is likely to pass, um, we're going to talk about everything that's in it and everything that you as people in the privacy community, as business owners, as attorneys need to know. So, Carl, you and I talked about this when it came out, but uh, there's no such thing as final regulations, is there? The uh, attorney general decided to um, issue some new regulations for a few parts of the CCPA, nothing all that major. But um, so the attorney general issued uh, amended regulations that address four aspects of what were the final regulations from the attorney general. Um, those involve the notice of right to opt out um, for offline collections of data, um, opt-out requests for sales, um, regulations involving agents, and regulations involving minors or consumers under 16 years of age. Um, we're not going to go through them in in excruciating detail here, but Carl, what did you think were uh, the regulations that really practitioners need to be aware of, if any? Yeah. So in terms of the the changes uh, that, that are made by, by the amendment to the regulation, really, it's people who are engaged in sales, I think, that have to worry the most about um, about the changes. I don't think it's anything that's super uh, surprising. It's, um, these are, you know, the regulations, it, it largely gives examples of things that people shouldn't do um, when they're talking about how to give consumers the option to opt out. So gives specific examples of ways you should not run afoul of presenting this. You shouldn't make it hard for consumers to find these, the ability to opt out or the notice. You should not make them go through multiple layers. You shouldn't prompt them with things like, are you sure you want to opt out because the sale of your information allows us to provide you this wonderful service? Um, just list some specific things that the businesses should, should be aware of. Yeah, these regulations target what uh, have been called dark patterns, which are practices by parties that uh, try to basically extract consent or extract information from somebody who is not, who wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and for example, as you're saying, uh, one of the examples they use in the, in the regulations is don't use double negatives. So don't have a button that says don't not sell my personal information, stuff like that. Um, and so these are targeted basically that 
the you know, the opt-outs need to be clear. They need to be easily accessible, not at the bottom of a massively long privacy policy, stuff like that. So other than that, um, the other regulation changes are mostly just cleanup. Um, we'd recommend you look at them, but uh, and Buckalter will be putting out some literature about this, but um, nothing really all that major. Um, but now to our main event, we're going to talk about the California Privacy Rights Act. It's also written somewhere as the Privacy Rights and Enforcement Act of 2020. Um, I'm going with CPRA. Uh, and so CPRA is, um, all, is what we will be voting on, known as Prop 24 on the November ballot. Um, it is put forth by Alistair McTaggart, the same real estate developer who put forth the CCPA before it was taken by the legislature. So just a little bit of history about that because it'll make a little bit more sense. Um, the CCPA was originally a ballot referendum for the 2018 November ballot that McTaggart put together with his group. But before the ballot came, the legislature reached a deal with him where he would pull the, pull the referendum from the ballot and the legislature would put it through, through the normal process instead. Um, but then before the CCPA even came into effect in late 2019, McTaggart started putting together this referendum and it appears it's going to go straight to the ballot. It is not going to be uh, rerouted through the legislature and it would amend the CCPA in a bunch of different ways. Um, most notably, it would add uh, a new definition of sensitive personal information. It would relabel a lot of the sales of data to be sales or shares of data, which is something Carl's going to talk about. Um, and then what I find to be actually the most impactful part of it is that it would create a new administrative agency and reroute enforcement of the CCPA to the newly formed California Privacy Protection Agency. So we're going to start talking about the CCPA and the CPPA in a way that's not going to be at all confusing. So Carl, why don't you tell us what you think is the most interesting and maybe impactful part of the CPRA? Well, you mentioned, Daniel, the, the kind of addition of um, this new category of personal information under the law, sensitive information, um, and, and the fact that there are some changes to the, the opt-out um, right that, that this would make to the law. And I think those two kind of together, um, they're, they're going to create um, a decent amount of work for businesses who are trying to figure out how to adapt to this um, because they've all just gone through this exercise of trying to understand uh, what the definition of sale is under the CCPA and which cookies on their websites or which relationships with their marketing vendors qualify as a sale. Well, now not only do they have to consider the type of the, the purpose of the transfer, but they have to somehow add in a metric that evaluates the type of the information um, that's a new category and exclude that from either sharing or even use. Um, so just to kind of reset, they what what the CPRA does for sensitive information is it gives people the ability to not only opt out of the sharing of the information, but to limit the use of the information. So now we've, we've just taken this kind of opt out of a certain kind of sharing. We've expanded it to opting out of any kind of sharing. And we've also expanded it in the other direction in terms of giving consumers the right to opt out of businesses use of it. Um, so it's just gonna get 
a lot more complex um, as businesses try to deal with this. Yeah, and one of the notable things actually in the CC in the CPRA that it's funny, I haven't really been hearing much discussion of it, but I, I think it's actually pretty impactful is that it would make businesses at the point of collection of the data also inform the consumer how long each category of personal information is going to be kept, which I don't know that many businesses know that, um, you know, they would have to think about it in much more detail ahead of time. What we know that kind of the way that CCPA compliance has gone is that companies have these notices that say, I look, here's what I'm collecting and I'm going to use it for pretty generalized, vague descriptions of what it's going to be used for. But now you need to start saying how long it's going to be held. Is that, how are companies going to evaluate that without thinking in very close detail about what they're going to be using it for? Carl, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, the way that if, if, if there's a statement about the retention of information and in many privacy policies, often it will be something to the, to the tune of, we will retain this information for as long as reasonably necessary to complete the purposes for which we collected it. Um, and I'll be interested to see if that continues to be an acceptable statement. So, I mean, under just the plain language of the CPRA, you know, it says that businesses should state the period for which information will be retained, but it also says if that's not possible, then a business can state the metrics by which it will decide whether or not to retain it. And I think, you know, if looking at the the regulations that came out to implement the CCPA um, as kind of, you know, past as preface um, or past as precedent. I think that any regulations that come out interpreting this will probably come down on the side of saying we will keep this as long as we deem reasonably necessary is, is not going to be sufficient. Um, you know, thankfully businesses will have a couple of years from this point anyway to figure out exactly how to go about it. But um, right. I don't think that's going to be sufficient when, when regulations finally come out. And Weiss, you and I, before this, were talking about some of the parts of the CPRA that you thought were maybe the most interesting or impactful for businesses. What, uh, what did you want to discuss? Yeah. So with the CPRA, it seems like the California, it seems like the proponents want to move California even closer to the EU uh, GDPR model. Uh, there are new rights, for example, given to uh, given to consumers that wasn't in the CCPA. For example, the right to correct inaccurate information. That's something that wasn't necessarily referenced directly in the C CCPA, but is now a right that is included in the CPRA. Uh, you uh, companies now have to provide some logic involved with profiling if you want to profile a consumer's behavior, for example. That's something that is now being included. Uh, in, in addition there, I believe the CPRA also has language to the effect of, of um, using the GDPR principles like data minimization, purpose limitation, uh, a duty to avoid secondary or a, a duty to avoid secondary use of, of someone's personal data. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that it's we're starting to see uh, 
California at least moving more towards a GDPR model and just seeing these new uh, rights and and things added to it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other interesting things that I saw and something that we've talked about on this podcast before is that there's language in the CPRA about respecting browser signals um, for an opt-out or a do not track. Um, we talked about the do not track before because the answer was we don't really know how it's going to affect anything. Um, what the CPRA says is that uh, basically businesses can choose whether they want to use a do not sell my personal information or limit the use of my per sensitive personal information button or respect browser signals for do not track, but not both. They don't need to do both. Um, and if they basically, if they respect browser signals, then they do not need to put the button on the website. Um, that kind of is hard to understand how that's going to work with the current status of browser signals and do not track because as, as we talked about before, there are plenty of parts. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether a do not track signal is the most effective way to opt out under the CCPA. Um, Carl, you were the do not track expert before. What did you think about this? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, thinking through myself, you know, because we have, Recently, actually, uh, a number of, of industry groups like the Electronic Frontier Found Foundation and, and a number of others have put together the first uh, or one of the first popular anyway, um, iterations of a do not sell signal. Um, and they've made it available. You know, it's supposed to be easy for businesses to use. Um, but I, I, what I thought was interesting about that coming out was that, you know, I have the Electronic Frontier Foundation's privacy badger on some of my browsers. Um, I installed it after you told me to. Yeah, and what it does, you know, it sends, it, it used to send a do not track signal. It, it blocks various cookies. Um, but what I found was interesting was I didn't know that it was, it was actually sending out a do not sell signal without me doing anything because it defaulted to it when they added the feature. So, you know, I'm thinking of the current CCPA regulations and how they suggest that browser signals are to be treated as though they're from the individual, not as uh, an authorized agent. And um, I think, you know, that that has the potential to kind of create a lot of uh, unnecessary issues for businesses, um, especially if we, you know, the CPRA is going to get rid of the 30-day enforcement uh, you know, 30 day period to cure uh, violations. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's, if there are browser signals like that, that are sending out, um, do not share, do not sell requests, A, the kind of added complexity of the CPRA is going to make it hard for a unified solution to work. And B, um, just the, the way it's gone about is, is going to create a lot of potential enforcement. Right, because one of the problems with do not with the do not sell, do not track that we were talking about before is that there are plenty of companies whose websites we interact with in more than one way. Um, so let's say Facebook, for example, not to pick on them, except that they're a big company. Um, many of us interact with Facebook on my Chrome browser. I interact with it on my 
iPhone. I interact with it on my iPad on, you know, don't tell anybody, but I might log in on my work laptop every now and then, you know, things like that. And so um, let's say that in Chrome, I have privacy badger or I have some other do not, you know, Chrome's internal do not track signal. Um, and then in the other times I interact with Facebook through apps or through browsers, I don't have it. Um, that's just a lot of differing signals. And the problem is how, what is the company supposed to do? Um, and maybe the answer is that they're just not going to deal with it. And they're going to say, we're putting a button. We're not going to listen to browser signals at all because we don't know how to do this. Um, it's still too confusing. Um, and just the button system is much simpler. Now, another part of the CPRA, uh, we can just kind of list these because I don't know how much discussion they would need. But part, the reason why we're talking about this is that um, as of uh, the most recent press release by the supporters of the CPRA was polling at 77%. So there's a pretty decent chance that this thing passes. Um, it would come into effect January 1st, 2023, but it would retroactively apply to all data collected since January 1st, 2022. So companies would have a little over a year to start improving their collection practices, um, but wouldn't actually be enforced until uh, a year after that. Um, it would kick out the exceptions for employee and business to business um, collections a little farther, which actually is very similar to some action that was already put through the California legislature. Uh, Carl, do you want to talk about the employee data and the B2B exception that the legislature just adopted? Yeah, along with the um, along with the changes that we talked about at the, at the top of the podcast here, um, along with the changes to the sale opt out, the other uh, bill that went through was a, it just simply changed the expiration date for the current exemptions for employee and b2b data obviously when i say employee data that's kind of colloquial it's a broader category of people that look like employees um but yeah so so that's been kicked out to 2022 currently and if the cpra does not pass it will stay that way um, but that amendment will take effect, or I'm sorry, <laughs> that amendment will not take effect if the CPRA does pass because the CPRA will push it all the way to 2023. So either way, there's not going to be, um, companies aren't going to have to make those expanded disclosures about uh, their employees or to their employees until at least 2022. But there are still the limited obligations for employee information that exist um, and and that our companies need to be aware of. So just to clarify, the, um, those exceptions are, or exemptions are data that a company collects as to, let's just say broad, uh, generally it's workforce, um, that it doesn't need to treat those people as consumers. Their companies obviously collect a lot of data about the people who work for them um, in various capacities and they don't need to treat all of that information with the same level of rights and opt-ins and opt-outs as they might under the CCPA. Um, and then the B2B exception is that when two companies reach a deal, if they happen to collect data based on the employees involved 
who represented the various companies, then that also is not data that's, I guess, subject to the CCPA. Is that about right, Carl? That yeah, that's generally right. More um, or less. I, I, I do. I do want. I just want to. I like to be careful when I say that's not subject to the CCPA because, so for instance, employee data, people, uh, the contractors to the business, employees, applicants. Um, one of the things that still applies to them is the company still has to give them notice at, at or before collection. So like you need to tell the applicants on your job site um, what information you're collecting about them, but they don't have the right tied to that information to then go and request the categories or deletion or other things um, that, that other consumers have rights for. Great. And Weiss, you're our, uh, you're our data breach expert. And one of the parts of the CC, sorry, CPRA, that's not the last time that's going to happen, is that it broadens the definition of data breach to include disclosure of an email address. If uh, along with the email address, there was also a disclosure of either a password or a security question with an answer. So basically allowing access. Um, how do you see that being administered or how do you think that changes um, the way that this law gets enforced? I mean, it's, it seems not too, it doesn't stray too far away from the pre from the already existing California data breach laws. I mean, I know that my understanding is that for typical data breach laws, like it, uh, an email alone usually does not constitute um, is, is not grounds to give an obligation to, uh, to, notify in terms of a breach but if there's a way in if there's a way to access the profile then at that point it becomes an issue so it seems like it's just keeping consistent with that um i'm not sure if carl sees it as a different reading but um yeah i i see it being just keeping consistent within these these interconnecting laws um and then just jump, transitioning to another aspect of this that I actually do find interesting, and I, I, I'm curious to see, Daniel, your your opinion on, is uh, the fact that now, so our understanding was that there were two distinct relationships that a company has between third parties and service providers. And uh, now there's a new, a third distinct relationship, which is a contractor um, in the CPRA. Now, my understanding is that the contractor is just, it's pursuant to a written contract. I'm not quite certain how different that is than my understanding of what a service, like how you establish a service provider relationship. So I, I'm curious to see the thought process involved with adding this third category in the first place. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the CPRA really doesn't go into a lot of detail. It, it, it defines a contractor as a person to whom the business makes available the consumer's PI for a business purpose pursuant to a contract. Um, that uh, And, and the, the contractor has to have agreed in writing to abide by the privacy principles of the CCPA. But other than that, um, it doesn't really go into much detail as to how it's being treated differently. Um, so I think what we're going to have to see, I, I mean, my, my guess is that the reason why they may have done that is 
that service provider is defined much more specifically as a, as a person, of course, person in quotes, that processes information on behalf of the business. Um, I guess what, I guess part of the motivation for this is that there may have been some gray area or some space that was not yet covered between service provider and third party um, where somebody is subject to a contract, but is not processing the data. Um, this might bring us maybe a little bit closer to this GDPR model, which doesn't use the term service provider, um, but uses data controller um, and things like that. So um, I don't, but basically I don't really see contractor changing much about actually the relationship of the data between the, the relationship between the consumer and the uh, company or the consumer um, and the contractor. I think it's just maybe kind of filling in what may have been an uncovered middle ground. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like practical purposes wise, a lot of times when we were informing our, our own clients in order to ensure that a an entity that you're working with gets covered as a service provider, it's you should have a data processing addendum or amendment or something, essentially turning it into a contractual relationship, even if, or at least the processing of the data, at least that purpose should be pursuant to a contract. So it seems like, I don't know if maybe this is the legis or not the legis, but the, the proponent's way of sort of nudging to make sure that there are contracts in place. It's like, Hey, here's this new category. It's contractor. Like if, if, we want to make sure that you as a process or you as a entity that's processing this information, that you do it strictly guided to this specific contract that you have. I don't know. It's just a, a thought I'm wondering regarding this thing. Well, I mean, so one, one thing that I usually, it's just an awkward truism about the CCPA in terms of the language. So like when I'm talking to a client and I'm trying to describe uh, the impact of being a third party or not, you know, the C the CCPA, the current law, it says a third party is any person who is not any of the following, but there's no word for someone who's not a third party. It's, you just have to say a non third party. And at that point, when you're trying to talk about, well, you can either be a service provider or a non third party. It just gets like, you start talking in double negatives and it's super confusing. I, I think that um, yeah, use, having the concept of a contractor gives us a little bit of a, a common language to describe these non-third parties with whom we might be sharing data that are not service providers. Um, you know, very considerate for them to give us this uh, <laughs> this to help us assist with. Because you're right, there are a lot of gaps in in the CCPA that kind of keeps you know us from doing this. My my default when I talk about it is I just I refer to I can't say third party, right? Because it's a defined term, but I, I say vendor, um, right? But not everything's a vendor, not yet. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about um, what was about uh, your analogy of, um, you know, if this, if this was a physical store, if I walked into Gurner's Goods and there was somebody there standing in the store who was, you know, taking down notes about every person who walked in um, and they offered some sort of service in exchange, but 
that, uh, but we don't know what data they're taking back to them or how they're using it, that th that is basically a relationship that the store owner needs to establish. The store owner needs to make sure that this dude who's standing in the store with a notepad is not violating the people's rights who walk in. Um, and up until now, it's basically, okay, you, well, what service are they providing? Um, but that may not have always been the case. You know, it, there are plenty of situations in which the, again, I, I, it's hard not to say third party, the other party was collecting the data, but not for a service providing, not for a service function. And here you can, yeah, make it clear that this, they are a contractor, meaning that don't worry, we have a contract that says that they are going to abide by the privacy principles, but you don't need to take the further step of that they're actually providing some sort of service that would fit under the service provider definition. This is just word salad at this point. All right, so let's talk about, well, okay, so just a couple other parts of the CPRA, just to make sure we mentioned them. Um, so with sensitive personal information, there needs to be an opt-out list, uh, an opt-out button for that, or a combined opt-out button for limit the use of my SPI and do not uh, sell my PI. Um, uh, this, what Royce was talking about, about automated decision-making, that's gonna be very interesting to see how that ends up going. And actually that kind of mirrors some legislation in, in Congress about, um, the filter bubble and how much how much companies are allowed to decide what to show you based on the information they know about you. That's something we'll get into in much greater detail later, but I find that fascinating. Um, the CPRA would increase sanctions related to violations of uh, minors data. Um, and uh, perhaps most importantly, the CPRA can only be amended it can be amended in the future by a majority of the legislature, but only so long as the amendments, quote, enhance privacy and are consistent with and further the purposes and intent of this act, end quote. So that's all going to be very interesting. But now let's get down to the spicy part. Uh, criticisms. Uh, this is a privacy law that is not supported by a lot of privacy activists. Um, some of the notable people in in opposition. Um, first of all, Mary Stone Ross, who a, a former spy turned privacy advocate, um, the EFF, the ACLU, um, lots of really well-respected privacy organizations and privacy activists. Um, there are many that do support it too, but um, one of the main criticisms has been that it expands the so-called pay for privacy program um, also known as maybe loyalty programs or something of that ilk. We were talking before the pod about, we're not really sure we agree with this criticism just as it's worded. Uh, Carl, do you want to explain what we were talking about there? Sure. The, the, the criticisms of the CPRA, um, you know, they're, they're fair criticisms perhaps of uh, consumer protections in, in general, um, but the criticisms about this specific law and whether or not it should pass, um, they're, they're, they're criticisms that it's not fixing an issue that is already an issue, um, right? So 
for example, not having a private right of action, um, there it's not that there's no enforcement in this statute at all. That you know, it's expanding, it's increasing the fines and creating a new agency to to regulate it. Um, but some privacy advocates are opposed to to the CPRA specifically because it doesn't include a private right of action, so that individuals can can sue based on violations. Um, and the other one is for um, loyalty cards. So there's a specific edition uh, within the CPRA that that says um, loyalty cards will not be considered discrimination that's prohibited by the law. Well, the way the CCPA, the current law, is written, um, it, it's not at all clear that that conduct would be prohibited anyway. Um, you know, the current state of the law doesn't seem to prohibit it as long as that the value of the information that's being used is connected to the value of um, the, the discount provided. So just adding the line that says that loyalty cards um, are not a violation of this title, I mean, maybe that changes the way a court interprets that provision, you know, three years, four years from now. But at this point, it's not really clear that that adding that provision in is is eroding any consumer protections to me. Yeah. And one of the things that you were pointing out was that in this draft of the CPRA that was um, that was distributed in November 2019, it the, the relevant section, um, the amendment to the CCPA would make it so that, well, okay, just a little bit of background. So what the CCPA says is that a business may offer financial incentives including payments to consumers for the collection of personal information. They may also offer a different price level of services, et cetera, but it has to be directly related to the value provided to the business by the data. Um, and so in this version that went around in November, the directly related, uh, it was changed from the value of the increased goods or services must be instead of directly related to the value, must be reasonably related to the value, which is, of course, a, an easier standard. Well, what Carl pointed out was that that was already changed. The CCPA, actually, uh, one of the amendments that happened before the CCPA came into effect already changed it from directly related to reasonably related. So that's not something that would change with the CPRA. That's something that would, whether you vote yes or no on Prop 24, is already part of the law. So... Um, it's just interesting to see uh, the criticism of pay for privacy, um, which whether or not you believe that's a bad thing, it, it, it's not clear that voting no would actually prevent that from happening. Um, now, Weiss, you, um, you're you a California resident like I am. Uh, the referendum process on its own comes with its own set of perfectly valid criticisms. Can you tell us why it's a bad idea in general, or at least why the critics think that this is a bad idea as a, a way to make groundbreaking law? Well, I, I, the referendum process, I mean, transcending beyond just this specific uh, issue, I mean, for one, a lot of a lot of organizations and a lot of uh, private companies and you know million to billion dollar industries pump so much money into these referendums that and not just money but ads and and all sorts of uh, campaign involved for each specific thing that I mean I, I'm just speaking just as a California resident 
it's just such a confusing and convoluted process. And each of these ballot referendums, I don't know about you, but the, the names of these things don't match like what I'm trying, you know, they all sound great. <laughs> but you, then when you actually read into the law, which sadly, I'm not quite certain how many people do, you realize just how, um, how far it may stray from what it's, what you think it's intended purpose is going to be and then you see who supports it and then you realize why it's just you know the the criticism in general when it comes to having things being legislated in the legislature with uh with representatives who go through the the process to draft a law it it seems like it seems like that provides a little bit more clarity i mean i also i don't know uh, a part of me is also, I have complicated feelings over it because in theory, it does sound nice, right? For the opportunity opportunity for California citizens to actually vote for what laws they want to see on the books. So in theory, it works. I just, yeah, I, I can understand the criticisms and uh, I... I too get a little frustrated trying to comb through these propositions and understand what exactly I'm what exactly I'm voting for because a lot of times it it's not clear. You know, on the flip side, you guys have the CCPA. Meanwhile, the Washington Privacy Act has failed three times, so it it did something down there. It's true, for better it, or it, worse. Yes. So, well, one of the main criticisms of the referendum process in general is that you get these laws put on the books that can really only be amended by another referendum. Um, and that's obviously hard, even if you wanted to just kind of do cleanup legislation, uh, just to clarify something that wasn't clear or typos, things like that. Um, that's the problem with the referendum process. Now, the CC, the CPRA. Oh, Daniel, I, I do want to go into that for a second. I mean, is it just me, or do I? F I feel like I'm voting on something about dialysis machines every single election. Oh, I do not understand why this issue has not been fully legislated, but it feels like every election I have to figure out what my stance is on dialysis machines. It's seriously, right. on, it's on every ballot. Right. It was certainly two years ago about capping profits. I think in this year, it's about whether there needs to be a, a doctor on hand who's specialized in this or that. It's like, I, I don't know enough about dialysis to be making these decisions. You know, and, and of course, that is a problem with, with privacy is that um, we're lawyers, you know, we're, we're, we read laws for a living. And um, I, I feel like every time I read the CPRA, I text you guys and I think, did you know this was in here? And, it, you know, it can be a little confusing because one of the main criticisms for this is it's like a 59 page document or 50, 52 page, sorry. And it's not written particularly clearly. And so that that's a problem. Um, but one of the main criticisms is, you know, that these things are hard to edit. Um, one key function of the CPRA is that it does allow for amendment. It allows for amendment based on a simple majority, uh, as long as the amendments enhance privacy and are consistent with and further the purposes of an intent of this act. Now, that's totally clear, right, Carl? Don't we all know what it means when something enhances privacy and is consistent with this act? Oh, yeah, definitely not. Is there a problem there? Interpretations. So that's that's going to be a point of contention, do you think? I do think it'll be a point of contention, but I also 
I think that's going to be more a point of contention uh, at a technical level and in the courts. I mean, once if this passes and and a new uh, privacy agency is stood up, they're going to issue regulations, and it that's going to get a lot more clear. Um, and I think I think what'll really happen is it will just push the uh, kind of regulation and rulemaking and all of that, it'll push it to the administrative level as opposed to um, enacting new legislation. And, and if we learned anything about the CCPA is that regulations will just continue to get dumped every every few months, whether we ask for it or not. Well, so that actually is the perfect segue, thank you guys, to, uh, to talk more about the CPP, CPPA. This is getting very confusing. The California Privacy Protection Agency. So the CPPA would be the new enforcement body. It's a brand new administrative agency um, to enforce and implement consumer privacy laws and impose fines. It would be a five member board with the chair and one member being appointed by the governor, one member each by the attorney general, the Senate Rules Committee and the speaker of the assembly. So uh, based on the current makeup of the government it would be all Democrats. Um, and the CPPA would have the power to issue cease and desist orders. They can issue uh, um, administrative fines up to $2,500 per violation or $7,500 per intentional violation or violation involving the PI of minors. Um, they'd also have powers to compel, power to, to subpoena, basically everything that a court uh, that you would need, such as a court to um to impose these sorts of punishments. Now, one of the main criticisms I saw of the CCPA coming in is that as much as the attorney general's office was staffing a privacy wing, and they, I think they hired something like 23 attorneys and there was a few million dollars budget, um, the criticism was enforcement was going to be very slow and very expensive. And even though they might, even though the money that they would make back in the form of damages or fines would go to further future enforcement, you would inherently have a problem where the attorney general's office, especially if they went after like Facebook or something like that, or a big company that could take up the whole budget and the whole staff for ever. And the amount of enforcement we would see, particularly from against smaller companies um, or, you know, less aggravating, but still real violations of the act we may see less of that. I think personally that if this is going to be an administrative thing and you have an administrative agency that can just levy fines or levy cease and desist orders without going through the court or without going through kind of the civil litigation process, we're going to see way more enforcement um, on, a, on, a, on a smaller level too. Um, the attorney general's office has said that they're going to basically honor uh, companies that um, want to comply. You know, they're not going to try to do gotcha enforcement that's going to be mostly against bad actors but i think that we're going to be seeing a lot more enforcement against kind of the um just on a smaller level uh day to day um weiss what do you think about that well to that point isn't there also a modification of the 30-day right to cure so not only do we have now an agency that has that seems to be focused that can focus their attention on on this in general but now companies may be at receiving fines without having any kind of um, opportunity to you know with a with that opportunity to cure it so 
to that point, there might be, you might see a little bit more, uh, more happening rather than less. And one of the other things, in addition to getting rid of the, the 30 day cure period, um, you know, focusing only on the, the privacy protection agency um, that, that I, I think is maybe a good thing within the CPRA is um, it also, it allows for businesses to voluntarily self-certify um, that they're in compliance with the, this, well, I guess it would then be the CPRA, not the CCPA, but to voluntarily self-certify. Um, and the, the agency would then maintain a list of, um, of entities that had self-certified. Um, and I think that's, you know, on the one hand, that's useful if you're a small business and you're in California um, you, or you, you know that you're going to be subject to jurisdiction, um, that's not an issue for you then self-certifying might, might be a, a great idea um, in order to avoid inquiry down the road. Um, that being said, you know, large organizations who, or people who might not be, uh, you know, quite so certain that they're subject to this jurisdiction, um, I, I would just recommend that they kind of look at people who self-certified uh, compliance with Privacy Shield. Obviously, that's not that's not exactly the same situation that's going to happen, but you know, um, it would mean voluntarily subjecting yourself to to the jurisdiction of this agency, um, which merits consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, some of the other criticisms that we've seen about the CPRA, um, it doesn't go far enough. I think that's what a lot of the kind of pro privacy activist groups would say about it. It doesn't transfer the, the system from an opt-in default, or it doesn't transfer, it, it still uses an opt-out default instead of an opt-in default. Um, it doesn't restrict government invasion of privacy. Um, it, also, those no, are, private action, no, private, no private right of action for a general general breach, right? Right. Or sorry, for a, you know, not complying. Right, and no private right of action, exactly. So those are, I mean, those are certainly differences of opinion and if, and that's valid. Um, one uh, other point is that it would lessen the uh, protection for biometric information. Um, right now, the CCPA says that um, biometric information is considered personal information if it can be used to identify a person and it would change the language to it would only be PI if it's biometric information that is or is intended to be used to identify a person. So that's a minor change in language, but potentially significant change in uh, that significant, that much less information, much less biometric information would be considered uh, PI and would be protected. So th those are all, uh, those are all perfectly legitimate criticisms and um, it's not really clear why they chose to take those out, but um, that's, that's the law. So we've basically gone through everything that we see as the most significant parts of the CPRA. It's obviously a very long document and there are more things um, that that will come up and, and more things that other, uh, other parties may consider to be the most impactful, but that's the ones that we discussed here. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you again, uh, Carl Gurner from Seattle and Weiss Hamid from our LA office. I'm Daniel Zarchi in San Francisco office. This is brought to you by Buckalter, a professional corporation up and down the West Coast. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for coming on the show. And uh, we'll be back soon.